1: all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM Network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the man looking really good in his mirror universe leather uniform, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? I'm really hot. In the leather uniform. And it's hard when you have a itch to
0: scratch through the leather. So oh,
1: it's the worst. Now isn't I know it?
0: why the mirror universe counterparts are really ticked off all the time because they can't scratch.
1: That makes sense. You know what? Headcanon accepted. That makes sense. I like that. Yeah, I'm just waiting
0: for a comic <laughs> or a novel that talks about how the you know everybody's really itchy in the mirror
1: universe. <laughs> hmm. Well, we are going to be talking about a comic today uh, that has to do with the mirror universe. Unfortunately, I don't think that comes up, but everybody does look really angry. So, in my mind, that's why they're angry now, though. <laughs> right? Yes. They. It's like they're they live in
0: poison ivy land.
1: <laughs> exactly. So, for our feature today, we will be talking about the Star Trek: The Next Generation novel, A Time to Be Born which is the first novel of that epic nine-part novel series that came out a few years ago. But first, like I mentioned, we do have a comic to talk about in the news segment, and that is issue number one of the Star Trek Discovery Succession miniseries. So this is a comic that takes place entirely in the Mirror Universe, and with the exception of a little tiny bit of a prologue at the very beginning, it all takes place pretty much immediately after discovery leaves the mirror universe towards the end of season one of discovery. So Bruce kind of initial reactions. What did you think of this one?
0: Well, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I was thrown off at the beginning because it's like you just mentioned. When you open up the comic, there is a statement that says that the following takes place after the events of star Trek discovery season one after discovery and its crew returned to the original timeline this is what happened in the mirror universe after they left and i was like oh this is so awesome we're going to pick up right where in the mirror universe where discovery left and so Mm -hmm. it starts off with mirror burnham and i was like oh she's alive (laughs) and then there's lorca i was like wait how can could be that? Did he survive? I was all con- like, wait, what's going on? And then, but wasn't until I got to the third page. Then it says one year later, after the destruction of the Imperial flagship, I was like, oh, this is a flashback. But because the opening mm-hmm. statement says this takes place immediately after, I'm expecting that first panel to be at that period.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a bit ridiculous. That threw me off, too, because, yeah, I was going through the same thing. And I'm like, OK, that was not the best place for that little blurb then because you immediately it says what you what you will see next is immediately taking place after the, those episodes and wait no it's not what are you talking about yeah and then we get into the meat of the comic and they follow that yeah so that that did bug me and they didn't really sure.
0: need to have it there uh because i mean at least within the story you wouldn't have been lost you would have just started off maybe assuming that this is a you know prior to when discovery comes to the mirror universe, because then, but when you get to the third page, it says one year later after the destruction of the flagship. So then you're, then you know Mm -hmm. where you are at that point.
1: Yeah, exactly. That blurb maybe should have been something a little more generic, like the mirror universe, a dark mirror of our own where blah, 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 you know, just kind of setting the mood instead of this weird expectation. That's not Exactly right <laughs> right but I mean that's the, but I mean that's not a huge complaint. it
0: just threw me off but mm-hmm. outside of that, I mean this is you know the first issue of a multi-part story and I mean I thought it started off really well because we are finding out the events of what happened and the universe is trying to figure out what they need to do next now that Giorgio, the emperor, is gone or presumed dead. and so they have to
1: mm-hmm.
0: reform the empire or who's going to take over and such after that. So it's an interesting start to the storyline.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I enjoyed this one. I think there's a lot going for it. Uh, the artwork for one thing is really great. And one of my favorite minor characters is Kayla Detmer and we get a lot of her mirror counterpart in this one. So I really liked that. I thought that was cool. And the story itself is pretty interesting. I, so Basically, we start by following the Shenzhou and they're kind of, uh, coming across the remains of the Charon, which was destroyed by discovery. And they're trying to figure out what happened. Apparently there's one guy that they rescue, uh, that informs them of what went on and that the emperor is dead and all that kind of stuff. And then we go back to earth and we see this cousin of Emperor Georgiou kind of taking the throne before we get there though there's one really glaring thing that I had to go back and check because it really bugged me and that's the character of Awoshikun and I think I'm saying her name right she was killed in the episode what's past as prologue we see her vaporized on screen by Lorca she's the emperor's chief of security on the Charon And all of a sudden she's alive and well here on the Shenzhou. Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) And just to make sure, because I distinctly remember that scene where she comes out with her hands up and she's all sweaty and nervous. And she says, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the emperor's like, what are you doing here? And then she gets vaporized. And I double checked on memory alpha. And absolutely, she was vaporized by Gabriel Lorca when he seized control of the Charon in the episode What's Past is Prologue. Underneath that, in Apocrypha, they have, in the Discovery comic series, Succession, it was revealed that Owoshikun had somehow survived and was aboard the ISS But Shenzhou. she was vaporized, right? She was vaporized. She's, so I think, I, I hate to say it, this is an out-and-out mistake by the writers of the comic which is kind of unfortunate or the uh, mistake of the show for killing her (laughs) (laughs) well i mean i would tend in that direction too because i really like the character and and the actress who plays her but then the comic goes and kills her just a few pages in later anyway so she's like kenny from south park (laughs) (laughs) exactly Kenny keeps showing
0: up it gets killed in every episode that's going to happen here with discovery
1: Yep. I think that must be it, because it was it was a weird mistake to make, but uh I I can't find any other explanation. Okay, so <laughs> here we
0: go. This is going into Bruce's head cannon, trying to make it all work. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. No, here this we is go. gonna work. This is gonna work. <laughs> so we're n- all right. She's never referred to in this comic by her first name, just her last name. So this could be her twin sister.
1: Ah, okay. So it's not Joanne Ooshikun, it's it's Mary Marry you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, Okay. All right. Well. You know, could be a cousin that, you know, they look similar. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going with <laughs> that. that. I'm going it. with that. Unless, uh, well, right. you know, here we go. Unless there is a technology in the Mirror Universe that when you shoot, you have a certain gun that it looks like you're vaporizing someone, but all you're doing is really, it's almost like a transport, it's like sending them somewhere.
1: A, it's called the, we've got a really cool character we want to use later. So we're going to save them gun, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, okay. I, I,
0: we shouldn't harp on it a lot, but it is interesting that they didn't pick up on that and they killed the character in the comic that they didn't say, Oh, wait a second. Didn't we already see her get killed before?
1: Hmm. Yeah. It, it Like I said, it just seems like an odd mistake to make, but uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, that aside, uh, getting into the story, I've, I find this story really interesting. This character of Alexander who takes the throne, do we, he's not anybody from Star Trek that we know elsewhere. Not he- that I
0: could think of. I was wondering the same thing because just about every character in this comic is someone we've known before or seen before. And I don't recall this one being from anything that we've read or seen before. And it's mm-hmm. not Alexander, yeah, like, of... like Worf's son, Alexander either. So...
1: No. Yeah. <laughs> or the, or the short guy from um, the TOS episode whose name I can't remember at the moment. Plato's Stepchildren. That's oh, the yeah,
0: one.
1: Oh yeah. I just <laughs> saw that actually the other day.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was on the rotation on Netflix when I had playing
1: in the background. Nice. So this character, Alexander, do you think that Tom Hiddleston would be perfect to play him based on how he looks in here? Because I was thinking Loki on some of those close-ups. of his I
0: can see that. Yes. I see what you're saying, which is odd that you said that. And and I didn't relate him to uh, this character, but I kept thinking the character somewhat looks familiar to me. So maybe they did use him as a model.
1: Hmm. That could be. Yeah like in not directly but indirectly so we also kind of get to see some of the other rebels as well basically we're getting all of the reactions to the news that giorgio is dead and of course when there's a power vacuum or when there's a transition of power that's always the time that a government or a country is most vulnerable so we see the rebels reacting reacting to that and we see the mirror lorel which is kind of cool. And, and her reaction to the loss of Vogue and all of that sort of thing. So the pieces are kind of getting put into place here and there's kind of a surprise member of the rebels as well, which is uh, who is Sarek's wife, Amanda, which was a neat addition as well.
0: Yeah. I, th- I don't know. I think that part of it was the most interesting to me just to see Laurel leading the rebels in place of Vogue and seeing Amanda Grayson there and uh just forming that team like this is the chance now that the emperor is dead or they think she's dead now there's chaos in the empire that if you're going to do anything this is the time to do it and that's now and they're not the only group that is taking advantage of this opportunity too there's um mm-hmm. there's people within the empire that are looking to take an opportunity to make things right in their minds. So it, it's going to get, start to get crazy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. We meet a few of those characters and they're kind of loyalists to, uh, Lorca. They were kind of his, his people before he died. And one of them who is really cool to see in comics. And I think they got her look perfect. was, uh, in our universe, Admiral Cornwell. And here, I think she's a commander if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, so we get to see those elements kind of all falling into place as well. And then back on the Shenzhou, there's another kind of power struggle as well, which was really surprising. And this is where, uh, not only as we mentioned, a dies, but the entire bridge crew of the Shenzhou save for one person is all killed. Uh, unfortunately, because of my, my admiration and like of Kayla Detmer, (laughs) But uh, yeah, they're all wiped out. And the one left standing is probably the bridge crew member that we see on Discovery in the Prime Universe that we know the least about, that I'm most curious about. And that's uh, Commander and now Captain Arium.
0: Yeah, I, I almost had to go back and see how she killed everyone because everyone on the bridge starts choking and falling down. And I was like, you know, somebody doing a Jedi choke cold or something what's happening here and i see her walking and then i had to go back and look at a previous panel and notice that she had put a shield down over her face so obviously there's some kind of gas that's been released a poison toxin on the bridge and she was protected from it um with that mm-hmm. uh, face mask or, or or glass that's covered her face uh to protect herself from that yeah. and now yeah she's now the captain of the shenzhou
1: yeah, And and those of you who aren't sure who Commander Arium is, or Captain Arium, I guess, she's the uh, the kind of bionic person that we see occasionally in Discovery. She doesn't get a lot of lines, but I think she's a lieutenant commander in our universe and has command of the bridge a couple times. She's, you know, one of those bridge officers that I hope we'll learn a lot more about next season. You know, season. That's, so. that's one of the things, and it's hard to do this while you're... In production on
0: a show because you want to kind of keep things open to to explore these different characters if if the opportunity arises but it's like i would almost wish they would say you know what these are minor characters on discovery we're probably not going to explore them much let's go ahead and start exploring them in the books because I would love to have an Arium comic or novel that's just all about her character, the history of her, and 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 why she is like bionic, and you know, because she's apparently half human, half bionics, or or whatever. And, you know, I'd love to know that backstory, and I don't know if we'll really ever get that in Discovery. We might have to wait till the whole series is completed before they will even go there.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That that's one thing that I liked in in the last few episodes of the season was they they included them a little bit more. And I think that was kind of on purpose because Lorca was such a control freak and didn't really get the input of his bridge officers. And later on that changes. But yeah, I I would have liked to have seen more exploration. And like you said, the books in the comics are the perfect place to do that. And Star Trek has done that before. Like the Kelvin timeline, we get get, um, like the backstory of Scotty's little engineer helper friend, um played by Deep Roy in the movies Kinsner. whose name I can't Kinsner. remember at the moment. Kinsner. Wait. Kinser. 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 <laughs> Kinser. Yeah. Kinsner. Yes. And uh and the and the like Android science officer, Science Officer Zero One Five Nine or whatever his name was. But you know, so they did that with the the Kelvin Timeline characters. So something similar like that for the Discovery you know, quote unquote minor characters would be kind of welcome yeah. as well. I I
0: I really wish they would go there, but again, I think they want to keep that open in case they want to explore them more on the show. So Yeah, probably oh, well. <laughs> but we do see another character from our prime universe in the mirror universe that
1: we didn't see before, and it's uh Harry Mudd. Someone who, you know, we know of course is a very big hearted person who uh looks after refugees and and cares for young children. And is just an all-around stand-up guy by the looks of it. Wait, what? Wait, this has got to. Be... Oh, right, mirror yeah, universe. Yeah, it's got to right. be the mirror universe. <laughs> that that doesn't sound like the Harry Mudd I know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then through this character, we get kind of surprise ending, which I think that's the one thing I'm not going going to spoil here. Uh, if you haven't picked this up, uh, you should pick it up. It's a really good read, and there's a there's a surprise at the end that. Some people may have seen coming, but I think is pretty well executed. I will
0: give you the last word of the comic. Continued. Uh, And before that's to be.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't give anything (laughs) away.
0: But yes, the story will continue into the next issue.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So um, I, like I said, I recommend this one. I think it's a good, uh good start to this comic. Like I said, I think the pieces are all being put into place for some really interesting things to, to happen. And I can't, yeah, wait to and see it yeah. And it definitely
0: fills the void. I mean, I, the show mm-hmm. we're, in, we're waiting for season two and I'm really enjoying these comics. It's really filling the void. I don't feel like discovery's over. I'm just getting it in a different format right now.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. And, uh, there will be, I, I think this is a four comic miniseries. I think so. Is I think right? the last
0: issue is scheduled for July
1: is what I read. Okay. So yeah, we've got three more issues of this coming. Plus we've got James Swallow's novel Fear Itself coming later in the year as well. So there'll be a little bit more discovery to tide us over. Uh, and then whatever else might still be in the pipeline. That we, we should cover those
0: yet. on literary so. tracks. How's that?
1: That's a good idea. You know what? I'm going to write that down because that's, that's officer thinking right there. Yeah, don't let me forget. Excellent. Well, what do you say we jump on over to the feature and talk about a TNG novel? Yes, I'm excited. So today we're talking about a novel that was released in 2004 and it's the first novel of a nine part series. And this was the, a time to series. The first novel is a time to be born by John Vornholt And the way this series was set up is it's basically a series of duologies uh, culminating in the ninth novel by Keith R.A. DeCandido that kind of ties up the whole series. And so these first two novels, A Time to Be Born and A Time to Die, today we're talking about the first one, A Time to Be Born, like I mentioned. And these take place between the films Star Trek Insurrection and Star Trek Nemesis. And it kind of is setting up the C, the status quo as we see in star Trek nemesis by the time these books are all done. So first of all, Bruce, I want to ask, have you read this before? Is this your first time and and how did you read it? This
0: is the second time I've read this book. The first time I read it was four years ago and uh, I read it on my Kindle. So I read the first two, a time to be born and a time to die. And then I was going to read all the others and didn't get around to them. As a matter of fact, there was a a group on Goodreads that was starting to read them. And they kind of trickled off. Hmm. And um, they never, I don't even think they got back into it. And I was going to read it with the group and it just didn't happen. So this is a perfect opportunity to do it. And I don't know why I didn't read these when they came out in 2004. I, I really I who knows what was going on in my life I have no idea but I'm glad that we're actually <laughs> venturing into these now.
1: Mhm. Yeah, me too. I actually did pick these up when they were first uh published and I did read and I think it was the first four novels of this series that I read back when they first came out and I picked up most of them. I have most of them in paperback. Uh and then this novel, you could actually point to it as the reason I started my, um, my novel review website as kind of a way to remember the novels that I'd read, because I know I had read this one and I could not remember a thing about it. So I thought I'm going to start a website and keep track of my thoughts on all these novels. And then at one point, in 2013, I was like, I'm going to read the entire Time To you series start to finish and, and really do it. So I read it a second time then. And that time I only got as far as a time to be born and a time to die. And then I stopped. <laughs> so this is my third time reading this novel. And, you know, third time's the charm. Maybe, maybe we'll make it, I'll make it all the way through the series this time. But uh, yeah, so I feel like I've read this one quite a bit. By yeah, this
0: so point. you should know this inside and out. I mean, I'm relying on you, Dan, to talk us through this whole novel.
1: Oh, boy. Well, I mean, it doesn't bode well that the first time I read it, I remembered nothing, like absolutely nothing about it. And the second time I read it, I kind of vaguely was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I kind of, Okay. So, but yeah, I should know it by now. Right. I mean, yeah, but you know, it's, that's how it
0: was for me. So I just read four years ago. I had to look it up on Goodreads cause I was tracking it then, but I thought it was just two years ago when I read it. I hadn't realized it'd been that long four years ago that, that I read it. And there was things that I remembered about the book. I'll kind of save it for a little later as to what it is that really stood out to me that I remembered about the book, but there's other elements of it that I was like, I do not remember this at all, you know? Um, Mm. but yeah, I'll, I'll reveal what it is that really stood out to me because it's one of my favorite aspects of this book and the next one.
1: Okay. Excellent. Ah, yeah. I got a little
0: surprise there for you.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Well, so the book starts out with, uh, kind of this unknown person. We're not sure who it is on this planet with this woman And they're evacuating. This planet's kind of a casualty of the Dominion War, and it's been laid waste and barren. And this young man has to, you know, basically convinces this woman to evacuate. And we eventually find out that this person is Wesley Crusher, and he's kind of nearing the completion of his training as a traveler. And as part of that, he sees a vision of the future, in which the enterprise is destroyed with all hands aboard. And of course, this is horrible for Wesley because one of the lessons he has to learn is that as a traveler, he will have to simply observe and kind of bear witness to events in the galaxy rather than interfering and, you know, taking part in them. And of course, that's something he really can't live with. Um, This book, it's kind of just introducing everything and the story doesn't wrap up and we'll see more payoff in the second book. But just to start out with kind of reading this first bit and seeing that Wesley was going to be a part of this book. What did you think of bringing that Hmm. character back in?
0: You know, I don't recall the first time I read this if I knew Wesley was a big part of this book or not. Uh I think maybe I did and I was looking forward to it because I was just curious to know what they're going to do with the Wesley character because you know we all know that there's a love-hate relationship with Wesley probably there's you know especially in the earlier seasons of TNG there was probably more people that didn't care for Wesley and then there's other people that love Wesley. Um Wesley was never a favorite character of mine. I never hated Wesley. He just you know, he wasn't anybody that I got excited about. I remember when TNG was first airing and as Wesley got older and he was going away to the Academy, I liked Wesley better as an older character than his younger self of saving the ship every episode, especially that first season. Mm-hmm. Um, But then going into this novel, knowing that he's older and he's with the Traveler, I was very curious to see where this would go. So I was very open to that but i was also kind of surprised because i knew these books are kind of that filling that gap between insurrection and first contact i'm sorry insurrection and nemesis and i just wouldn't think wesley would have a big play in those stories and i don't <clears> know <throat> what his play is through all these books if if he continues on through all of them or not since i've only read the first two
1: so uh, what did you think when you heard about wesley being in this book Kind of, I, I was a little bit excited because, you know, any, a lot of, like Star Trek authors kind of ha, have a history of taking plot threads that have been abandoned or not even abandoned, but just, you know, kind of out there in the universe and tying them in and doing really interesting things with them. So, you know, if someone could do something interesting with Wesley as a traveler, like, that's cool. Like, I'm, I'm eager to see how that plays out. And the one thing about Nemesis is... Um, even though his lines were cut in from the final film, there are a couple shots in the finished film where you see Wesley is at Riker and Troy's wedding and he's sitting there in a Starfleet uniform. Um, so I was always kind of wondering like, why is, what's he doing there? Like, is he like a Q now and just shows up in a Starfleet uniform all the time? Or, you know, like, what's that about? And, like you, I honestly don't know if this series answers that question, if it continues through. I've only, I've read the first four and I only remember the first two, <laughs> anything about them. So I'm not sure, but you know, I'm, I'm interested to see if they do tackle that question. If they explain his presence in, uh, Nemesis, yeah. you know whether he's just masquerading as Ensign Brewster and is for some reason at the head table or what?
0: <laughs> yeah. And I have the novelization for nemesis. I haven't read it though, but I do have it on the shelf. And so hmm. I wonder if that's even in there. I may have peeked at one point just to see, but I, I don't recall. So yeah, I, I'm curious to see if they address that also. Uh, and we also learned. A, so let me ask you real quick about the traveler. And and this is kind of staying on the hmm. whole subject of Wesley too. I, you know, the traveler I always thought was you know pretty cool. You know, I, I didn't mind the traveler storyline, but I've since learned, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of people don't like the traveler. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't. I just recently online I was reading something about traveler, and there was a it may have been in the Babel conference. I just remember like a few months ago, people were like, "Yeah, I never liked that episode of the traveler either." One of the episodes, I never liked the traveler. Dah, dah. I was like, I had no idea. That hmm. and maybe maybe it's not that, maybe it's just that one group. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But I just wondered what you thought of The Traveler.
1: Hmm. I, hmm. <laughs> I guess I've always been pretty eh on the Traveler. Like yeah. he's interesting, I guess. Um, I think I, I always found it weird. There there's kind of an old joke that when a character on Star Trek gets really annoying and you don't know what to do with them, you have them evolve to a higher plane of existence and leave. And, you know, I feel like, what, like it was Cass kind of, or something on Voyager? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and that's not, that's not my opinion on any of those characters. That's just something funny that I read online, you know, but, you know, whatever. So I, I don't know. I was always kind of like, eh, with how Wesley left and, and to join the traveler. I honestly don't really know how I feel about that. I think also partially because it was so near the end of the Next Generation series, I knew they weren't going to do anything really interesting with it. It was just a way to like kind of send him on his way and have a last Wesley story. So I was a little annoyed about that. But as far as the Traveler in general, I, yeah, he's an interesting character. Um, I'm glad Brent Spiner got the role playing Data instead of Eric Menyuk. I like him as an actor, but... I really like Brent Spiner, so yeah. <laughs> if if the Traveler was a consolation prize to the actor, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 the same way. It wasn't like the Traveler was an
0: outstanding character to me. What I really love about the Traveler is what he did with Wesley. What you know brings to the Wesley character. So mm-hmm. the fact that we're early in the series and the Traveler appears and says, you know, Wesley has these great abilities, and da da da. Then it's like, okay, well. You know, we've been led to believe he's a prodigy and, and you know, he's saving the ship and he seems to know more than, you know, the senior members of the crew, but it's now it's like, okay, well, there is something special about him. It's also, mm-hmm. it's almost like a a mystic quality to, to this character. All of a sudden, Wesley became a little more interesting to me, but not really after we first met the Traveler, but especially by the time we got further in the series And I think it was in season seven where the traveler returns and we find out these special things about Wesley and that he Mm -hmm. can be a traveler, too. And I thought that was really brilliant because now now we know why Wesley was so good at everything, because there's just something special and different about him. And now he's going on this journey to this higher plane of existence. And I just really found that to be interesting. But then we didn't get to see that until now. Mm-hmm. So, this is what I was saying about earlier. Wesley is my favorite part of this book.
1: Oh, interesting, okay, because um, of what
0: I just said, we're getting more of that in him,
1: yeah, I think hmm i I really like, and we're we're not getting into spoilers yet, but towards the end of the book, the role that Wesley's starting to play in the things that he does. I love that. I think that's really cool. and we'll we'll talk about that when we when we give this after we give the spoiler warning, but um, I really liked him in that part of the book and that aspect of it. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm on board. Wesley's a cool part of this book for sure. Well, again, <laughs>
0: because I think with all the characters, we get you know a little bit of development with a few of our core characters, but we're really finding out more about Wesley than what we've seen anywhere else. I mean, we're getting almost like a Wesley 2.0, a different Mm -hmm. Wesley.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, as I kind of hinted at, it's almost as if this novel is kind of split into two main parts. And in the first part of the story, the enterprise is assigned to the Rationar battle site, which is the site of the deadliest engagement of the dominion of war. And there's wrecks of thousands of ships here. There's, uh, basically it's a graveyard where every ship that was involved, Federation, Federation member worlds, allies, dominion, dominion allies, like the Cardassians and the Breen, they all fought here to the last man. Like everybody killed everybody at this site. And there's no real explanation yet. It's it's a mystery that they have to deal with as to why that happened and why this was such a costly and deadly battle. And on top of that, you have all these hulks of wrecked ships, but you've also got these weird anomalies like random energy surges um, that are kicking debris around and making tons of hazards to, to navigation. There's this weird gravitational vortex at the center that's pulling everything in. There's an antimatter asteroid apparently floating around out there and basically all these weird anomalies. And on top of that, you've got pirates and scavengers that are looting the wrecks and making off with technology and sometimes whole ships, stealing them to to strip them for technology. And already in place here is the USS Juno under Captain Leiden, and they're tasked with recovering bodies is kind of their main goal here and the Enterprise has now also been assigned there to conduct scientific spe- scientific experiments, perform guard duty for the Juno and things like that. And on the face of it we learn very quickly it's almost an impossible task. There's so many things going wrong and so many hazards here and Picard and the Enterprise in a few situations find themselves almost overwhelmed and making blunders here and there, which which they're not used to. Picard's not used to uh, making blunders. He's one of Starfleet's best. And the kind of friction between him and Captain Leiden play a big part in this first part of the story.
0: I almost felt as if Captain Leiden was not really working with Picard. I, mm-hmm. it, it just felt she was just, okay, Picard, here's the situation things are weird out here. Just kind of follow my lead. Don't go over there. Stay away from this and just, you know, be a good boy. And she just seemed too commanding of Picard, you know, and a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he's, you know, they're both captains, but he's obviously more senior because it's even mentioned that he's been like the longest serving captain in Starfleet. So, and it's the flagship. So it just seemed really odd. But then again, dealing with what she's been dealing with this whole time uh she seen some weird things and things don't always make sense and she's still trying to figure out a mystery while uh trying to accomplish their mission and you know you don't need another starship coming in in there and mucking things up as a matter of fact i think she was also hoping it was going to be someone else coming. Not someone, not anybody in particular, but more, I can't remember. Was it more like a rescue vessel or something like that, that she didn't expect Mm. they would send the enterprise. She was waiting for another type of vessel to help
1: out. Yeah. It's, it's a tough situation because, and they do mention in the book that although Picard is the more senior captain, she does have tenure there. Basically (laughs) she's in operational command of the overall mission, but yeah, they get off on the wrong foot right away. I mean, Picard comes and says, here are my orders from Starfleet. We're to do this, 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 and this. And Captain Leiden's like, no, you're just going to fly protection for us because that's all you're going to be able to do. And, you know, like there's just, there's no give and take. There's no working together. Like you said, it's just, they're, they bristle against each other right away. And it's unfortunate, you know, um, a lot of things go wrong, but you can't point to just one reason why they all went wrong. There's a failure of communication. There's failures on multiple levels from everyone involved, I think. Well, and he, Picard doesn't really seem to be that annoyed by it. You know, it's not like he's
0: trying to fight her. I think he no, is trying to work not. with her. Um, and I feel like after a while, she maybe gains a little more respect for him and maybe i think she always always respected him but i think she just started to learn to just trust him more and it's like okay picard you're saying you need to do something okay i'm okay with that i'm with you you know so it wasn't like she was a jerk or anything but uh Mm -hmm. she's she's being a captain she's leading the whole charge out there
1: Yeah. But at the same time, she's also very stressed as counselor Troy points out, they've been there a long time dealing with stuff that they shouldn't have to deal with, you know? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stress and a lot of pressure, I think on them to get this done. And it's at several points in the novel, they say like, there should be a task force out there doing this. It shouldn't just be these two ships and, and having to deal with all of this. So it's almost like they're being set up to fail a little bit. Not, not literally, but I think that Starfleet feels that like, Oh, we'll send, we'll send our best. We'll send captain Picard in the enterprise and he'll clean this whole thing up. It'll be fine. And that's not what the situation needs. The situation needs a lot more attention than just these two crews can give it. I think.
0: Yeah. I don't think Starfleet really understood what was going on out there. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that they've been told things, but maybe they didn't quite believe it and they wanted Picard to take a look at it. But it's also coming off of the Dominion War. And of course, we haven't seen much of the Enterprise with the Dominion War because it was, uh, the Dominion War was fought on the Deep Space Nine TV series. And we've had a few novels that venture onto uh, the Dominion War with the Enterprise-E. But um, this is the after effect of the war, But what we come to learn, in a sense, the war is over, but there's still a war going on in this graveyard.
1: Mm -hmm. This is probably a good time uh, to jump into spoilers, would you say? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk specifically, I think, going forward here about what that war is and what's, what's going on here. So in this battle site I mentioned you know, all this stuff is happening, all these weird anomalies. And several characters say this at a couple of points where it does feel like the war is still happening here. Like you'll be flying around what they call the boneyard, this, this battle site. And all of a sudden, you know, a ship will send out a random energy arc and go flying over and a Klingon bird of prey will split in two and fly that way. And it's just, it's really unpredictable and all this stuff is going on. And there's also something at work here. There's a, there's a mysterious presence that we don't really g- understand what it is until much later in the novel when Data actually sees what it is firsthand. But there's definitely a presence here that's continuing to muck things up and might even, some characters speculate, have been responsible for the initial reason why everybody fought to the last chip here. In the first place during the Dominion War. There's
0: also, what is the, there's an, a new Federation member that's. Yeah,
1: this. the Ontalians. Right. Who are, this falls within their space. They're kind of the closest planet. And a lot of the ships that were involved were their ships, I believe. And they're doing a lot of uh, recovering and salvage work as well, as well as chasing off pirates and scavengers. And. They're a new Federation member. Admiral Ross at one point says that, you know, they're a fairly new member and one that they want to hold on to because the Dominion War brought a lot of people into the Federation who were under attack by the Dominion and they don't want to lose these members. And, you know, basically the situation could spiral out of control and cause the Ontalians to turn against the Federation and eventually just such a situation happens.
0: Yeah, it was a little interesting because I didn't feel like we really got to visit that race all that much to learn anything about them. And maybe, and I don't recall if that comes up more in the next book, and maybe they want to leave them a little more mysterious. There were times I was really getting them confused with this other these scavengers or whatever out there. I always had to wait, who are we is? Are these the scavengers or these the new Federation members? Oh, these are the new Federation. Like I just had to keep reminding Mm -hmm. myself who was who in this that I don't know why, but it was a little confusing to me for a while.
1: Right. Yeah. So the Androssi. Yes. Yeah. They're the, they're the ones. So kind of the first major blunder that happens is Picard data and Laforge are exploring the Hulk of a galaxy class starship and, they dock the captain's yacht. The Calypso. And the Calypso, yeah, the replacement captain's yacht for the one lost in insurrection, apparently. Um, and w- what happens is it ends up getting stolen out from under them by these Andrazi. And Picard is incapacitated and they make off with the captain's yacht, which is, you know, a pretty expensive, pretty advanced piece of Federation hardware to have, you know, let, pirates make off with. So yeah, and card of
0: And those pirates were very clever. They had it all planned out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, they bested Picard, LaForge, and Data as a team. Like that's not many people can do that. And uh I think there were a few mistakes made. I think they've gotten a little complacent in their <laughs> old age maybe, but uh But yeah, they make off with the captain's yacht and Picard kind of has to answer for that a little bit. And at this point, it's more embarrassing than anything else. You know, the Federation flagship captain has been bested, uh, but he's not, you know, it's not negligence. It's not anything more drastic than he's a little embarrassed and has to kind of make it right at this point.
0: Yeah, it wasn't like they were really messing a lot of things up. They were batting zero. I mean, there was just several things that were going on that they maybe just weren't expecting things to play out the way they were. And and who knows, like you said, maybe because they were getting older or, <laughs> I, I, or maybe they just didn't believe this being a graveyard. Maybe they felt like it was a little safer than what they'd been led to believe. And I think that's why uh, the other captain uh Leden was questioning Picard and trying to lead him because maybe she just had a sense that he wasn't really listening to her and maybe mm-hmm. not really understanding and it's almost like you know, oh, does it almost sound like she's telling fairy tales of like this is some kind of haunted graveyard or something? Whatever. But yeah, even when the uh our crew on the yacht captures the uh Andrassi woman that she's you know she's buckled down on some she's locked up or whatever. But you know, she had planned everything out that she had a device that uh, Picard got numb and just kind of collapsed and he couldn't move and stuff. And she just unhooked herself and got up and walked out. It was all part of the plan. Got rid of him, threw him in the corridor of the abandoned ship and took off in the yacht. Joy mm-hmm. riding.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you know, it's gone in 60 seconds. She's, <laughs> they, they they steal the Federation hot rod and, and make off with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so this is kind of the first stumble. And like I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment, but it's not, it's not career ending as, you know, they fear that some of the other stuff that happens later might be. And basically what happens is Data witness, they, they're chasing pirates, and at some point Data and LaForge's ocular implants and the shuttle they're in get shut down by this effect generated by an enemy ship they think, because they come across the stolen yacht, but they come across an exact duplicate of it as well. There's two of them that each they're other. seeing. Yeah. And this is, they're identical by every meaning of the word. Like there are scratches of paint on the hull that match both. Like they're exactly identical. So, you know, they don't have an explanation for this at first. And then everything shuts down and, Data finds himself floating in space. And what he witnesses is uh, the Ontalian's flagship facing off against the yacht. And then the yacht fires a beam at the Ontalian ship and seems to scan it or something like that. And then turns into an exact replica of the Ontalian flagship. And then the actual Ontalian flagship is is destroyed. So Data sees all this and then is rescued And then back on the Enterprise, the Ontalian flagship is chasing them. And, you know, Picard and the crew are hailing the ship and they're getting no response and they're closing uh, to within range of of this weapon that Data saw them use, this scanning beam or whatever it was. And Data is urging Picard, you have to destroy it. It's a duplicate. It's not the real ship. You have to destroy it. The Enterprise has never been in more danger than it's in now, I promise you and picard of course has worked with data for many years trusts him and even asks him to turn off his emotion chip and then you know are you absolutely sure and he's like yes i i am not hysterical i'm not yelling we're in danger you have to destroy the ship so picard orders the ship destroyed and of course the ontalians they see the federation flagship destroy their ontalian flagship that from their perspective they don't know that it's a duplicate and Captain Leadon on the Juno is incensed and there's a standoff and the Antillian ships surround the Juno and then they go after the Enterprise and Picard is holding back. He's holding fire. He's not, you know, he's just hailing them, trying to explain himself. Um, Captain Leighton on the Juno fires back at the ship to, you know, save the Enterprise and then they all blast the Juno and destroy it and Picard goes... Well, crap. <laughs> <laughs> so like in the space of a chapter in this novel, like everything goes to hell. Like it's yeah. bad. And Picard and the crew return, like they warp back to Starfleet headquarters. They say, okay, <laughs> we, we got to get out of here. This is out of our control. Let's head back to Starfleet headquarters. And that kind of brings us to the second ha- part of this novel. Well, before where, we get you know, to that... That's what okay. I was just
0: going to say. This was almost like a, a two part novel. So mm-hmm. yeah, the, what you just described, that's, that's the first part. And you know, if we ever go camping, Dan, I want you to tell me stories of Star Trek at the campfire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cause you're like, I was worried I was trying to get it starting to get a little long winded. <laughs> you were going through
0: it. and I was just like, Oh yeah. And then there was that. Yeah. Like it was all coming back to me, the whole story. <laughs> I'm like, this is good. This is a great summary. But, um, The one thing I wanted to mention real quick about Data uh, in this part of the story is when he's floating out in space, he's deactivated. But he starts to reactivate after a while as he's floating in space. And Mm. he starts to have uh, visions. He starts to have these uh, of his memories of past life. Like we actually see him relieving a memory of being in the Academy and and other things and, and first joining the Enterprise. So I like that little Bit of uh, flashbacks that we got on Data at that point at the same time because we're viewing his memories with him as he's floating in space and seeing all these ships going around in like a whirlpool, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a very interesting visual uh, play for Data in that scene. So I really enjoyed that one.
1: Yeah, that was a, a nice little bit of character work, I think. Um, and any any insight into Data's early life in Starfleet, I think is really interesting because this novel actually brought up something that I've always kind of wondered, like what was Data like at the Academy? I can't imagine he would have had any trouble with any of the physical requirements and, you know, the, the, the learning stuff where he's sitting in a classroom taking tests, like he's just going to ace them all. He remembers every fact to which he's exposed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was kind of interesting that like the, Academy, the head, the Academy head is like, well, okay, we can waive those tests because you'll just pass them all <laughs> and all that stuff. It's just a neat little bit of insight. I thought for sure.
0: Yeah. And it made me think when they said they sometimes customize some of the tests based on the race. And I was thinking like Vulcans, you know, there, there's like a test about emotions. Well, if the Vulcans don't have emotions, you're not really going to test them on that. And that's well, kind of the same with data and among some other tests that maybe they should just abandoned because he's just going to pass or they already know what their results are going to be.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So for the second part of the novel, uh, the enterprise gets back to earth and basically the Admiralty is kind of wondering, okay, what do we do? Like this is, this is all screwed up. The Ontalians are threatening to leave the Federation. What do we do about Picard? And he's going to be, psychologically analyzed he's he's undergoing mental health tests uh to see that he's still fit to command and all that kind of stuff and you know will there be a trial will he be held possibly negligent in this affair and memorials for the juno crew like this is kind of i I enjoyed this aspect of the novel because we see a lot of things happen on star trek to the crews and day-to-day, you know, happenings on the Enterprise and that kind of thing. But we don't often see the fallout and the, you know, what people back at command are are dealing with with regards to it, especially something, you know, this big, you know, like an inquiry into culpable negligence and all that kind of stuff. There's been a few times in Star Trek we see that, like court-martial in the original series and stuff like that. But, you know, it's just a kind of neat peek into... The inner workings of Starfleet, especially like that meeting where all the admirals are gathered around and Necheyev is kind of going to bat for Picard and uh, Admiral Ross and Admiral Paris and all of them are like, well, we've got to get him back here and we've got to, you know, get him out of the command chair and see what's going on and save the Ontalian membership in the Federation and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And I like the fact that Even though they're investigating Picard, they kept referring to the fact that, you know, his stellar record Mm. as if they weren't going to just get him on this one thing. Like, you know, if if this one thing happened, there's a reason for it. And it's not just, oh, this guy messed up. Let's throw him under the bus. It's, well, you know, he's been a captain for a long time. We trust him. He has a stellar record. We still have to investigate this. We still have to put him on trial, but more than likely, uh, we are going to find in favor of him because of his record and the way what he's already explaining. We may believe it if he says it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's it's not one of these things where they just you know abandon everything they've known about Picard all these years and just you know believe that he's doing wrong. Yeah, it's it's almost a question of he's always done right. Can he really do wrong?
1: Yeah, I've got to also say, like, for what Picard goes through and what he sees and what he reacts to and how he handles it, like he handles that a heck of a lot better than I would have. Like, so they get him, they get him at Starfleet Health or or whatever Starfleet Medical, and he's undergoing psych- psychiatric tests and. He's in this hollow room that, you know, hollow ward that he's, uh, staying in being held there and just the little mind games and stuff that they play with him a little bit. That would really annoy the heck out of me. (laughs) I would lose my temper pretty quickly, which would probably tell them a lot about my psyche and say that I'm not fit to command a starship. Like someone like Jean-Luc Picard would be. So maybe, I guess that's why I'm not him, but, (laughs) you know, he, he puts up with a lot, I think, and he does it in a way that's very Picard-esque. If nothing else, the author of this novel, John Vornholt, captures Picard's voice, the best of any of the characters in this novel, I think, because of his patience. And even when he is getting annoyed, because we do get his inner thoughts as well, he's still very diplomatic and very Picard esque <laughs> uh, outwardly, which I really liked. Yeah, it's
0: not as if he's showing up here and he's like,
1: "Damn it, I that was a duplicate ship. I knew
0: what I was doing." You know, it's he's not like that. It's very much of, okay. I know why I'm here, and I think he also he was given a heads up from Crusher because she knew from mm-hmm. talking to the head of Starfleet medical that he was going to go under this evaluation. So he was also trying to protect her and not giving away the fact that he knew that he was going under this testing once they were, re- once they reached
1: earth. But right. Because she was ordered not to breathe a word to him. Right. After which she immediately went to his quarters and, and told him, and then they had a date. <laughs> and they had a date right. <laughs> so, uh, No conflicts of interest there though at all.
0: (laughs) But I think it's interesting how you were just describing that because it does come across to me as if Picard is being his diplomatic self. That he's approaching this as if he does with any planet or race that he's encountering for the first time or or if there's any kind of dispute. And he's going in level-headed and just dealing with it. In this case, he can't blame them for what they're doing because he did destroy a ship and it was based on the recommendation of an officer and not based on any facts that he had in front of him. And so he went with it and to prove the fact that he's not insane or, and to prove that he hasn't lost it, he is going to remain cool and collective and just ride this out and hopefully everything will work out. But at the same time, I think he's, we've seen some indications, not a lot, but some indications in this book that he's even questioning if he should be ending his career soon. You know, he's been Mm -hmm. on board for a long time. I don't think he seriously was thinking he would, but there were times where it's like, you know, I don't know, maybe not because of the results of what we're talking about, but early on the novel, it's like, you know, I've been doing this a long time. Maybe, maybe, you know, what point do I step down? When, when do I throw in the towel and just say, you know, enough is enough. I've, You know, he's not even been offered promotions anymore because everybody knows he's not going to take them. He's just always going to stay on this captain. And uh, I think he's also writing this out with the the counselor and going through this evaluation because I think he's using it as an opportunity for himself to evaluate himself and where he's going and and what he's doing. And maybe he's even Mm -hmm. questioning himself. Am I really even as fit... In command as I used to be.
1: Yeah, there there are a lot of things that come up with uh, during his sessions with the counselor, and that's counselor Colleen Cabot, who we kind of meet towards the end of this book. Um, this is <laughs> this is a character that I kept putting myself in Picard's shoes, and I would be really annoyed with this character because it feels like she's being very patronizing to him, and but at the same time. Whenever he kind of pushes up against it, she kind of changes a little bit. And she says, hey, Captain, you're here. I'm here. We need to do this. Okay. And he's like, oh, right. Okay. And they, and she kind of reverts back into, okay, now I'm your counselor again. So I'm like, okay, she's, she's very professional. She's doing her job. And I, I really appreciate in those moments how she treats Picard. Um, anyway that's just a little sidebar yeah i almost
0: feel like there's a bit of a wink to each other between these two characters mm-hmm. I mean, at one point i wondered if there was from her end a little even flirtatiousness about how she is with him especially when she starts very early on asking why he never married because she comes to his room which he has set up as a as a cabin it's one of her programs And so she's like, oh, you picked my log cabin. And he's just, she's like, would you have picked it if you hadn't known that I, this is my favorite or something. And she brings a picnic lunch, but they sit at the table in the cabin and they're eating it. And, you know, they just start questioning and she's like, why haven't you ever gotten married? And I don't feel like she was doing that because she was seeing, oh, is he available but there was a part of it that I read as maybe being, you know, a little interested and being a little flirtatious and and maybe even just doing that just to get him to respond to her and her questions. And and she did go there with the idea of is it because of the death of Jack Crusher that impacted you on never getting married? And his mm. answer was yes. I mean, he didn't even have to think about it. It was like, you know, because of what happened to his best friend, um, he just really hasn't been able to entertain the idea of getting married, which is great because what we know coming up future novels, this is a good bridge of getting to that point.
1: Yeah. I, I really liked those insights. I thought those were really well done. Um, it's, you know, we don't often see Picard being really vulnerable. And when we do, like there are, there are times, but they're very notable occasions and, you know, with counselor Troy or something like that, where he's revealing his feelings. So I really did appreciate those scenes where we get those insights. And like you mentioned here, the reason that he didn't marry, there are a number of reasons, but that was a big one. I thought was a really interesting uh, insight, one that I hadn't thought of before. And I like that the novel goes there with him for sure.
0: Yeah. Because when she suggests Jack Crusher, I almost expected him to say, uh, you know, no, I don't think so. Or let me think. Of, but he was very quick to say, "Yes, yes, I think that that is." Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he seems to be a little more calm about this whole situation. You'd think he'd fi- you'd think he'd be talking to his other crew members of like, "Okay, we have to somehow." help me get out of this. I'm going to play coy and I'm going to go along with things, but I need you guys to work on some things on your end to get some information that we can reveal later and, and free me and everybody. And we're living happily ever after again. But he just seems to just, he's just going with the flow and he doesn't really seem to be that annoyed by it and, or even that concerned.
1: Yeah. And I, I find it really interesting the deal that they're offered too, which was actually a very Generous deal, which is if he pleads guilty to negligence um, and apologizes. Actually, it wouldn't even get to that point. He would just claim responsibility, say there was mistaken identity and friendly fire, and apologize to the Ontalians. Then the Ontalians would stay in the Federation and Picard would still be on the Enterprise and go off on their merry way, which is a very generous deal given what happened. But Picard is unwilling to do that because it's not the truth. The truth is there's a mimic ship because he trusts Data. He believes data, Data's report to be accurate. There's a mimic ship out there. And not only is his own reputation at stake, but the Rationar battle site and whoever goes there to replace them afterwards, they're at stake as well. And they have to go back and solve that problem as well. So it's not just Picard, Picard's own reputation and feelings he's worried about. If I think maybe if that's all it was, he would probably be willing to say, okay, you know, that's fine. I'll, I'll take the blame. I know it's not true, but I'll, I'll take the blame and apologize and we'll move on. But he knows that there's more at stake than that.
0: Well, and also what's going on through this whole situation and especially when the admirals are meeting and, and when the, uh, they're. Questioning Picard on things, there's this uh Ensign Brewster there, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> Ensign Brewster's even like giving nods to Picard. And people always, you know, sometimes look at this Ensign and think he kind of there's something about him that looks familiar, even like a Geordie at one point's like that, that Brewster guy seems familiar, but then as soon as Ensign Brewster leaves, people are like, Wait, who was, who was that Ensign again? Was there an Ensign here? Like, people start to forget about him and what he looked like. And basically what we come to find out, and we, and, and we know about this all along, it's not revealed, but we know all along, this is Wesley. Wesley mm-hmm. is observing all of this, and, uh, but no one recognizes him. He's taking on a different look, or maybe he has the same look, but it's just he's messing with people's minds that they can't connect that it's Wesley. I, th- I just thought it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, this is, yeah, what we were referring to earlier, this part and Wesley's role in it, I think is really cool. I love that he just kind of shows up and is all of the sudden Admiral Necheyev's aide, kind of influencing her to just like, oh, okay, Ensign Brewster, that's your name. Okay, cool. Um, here, file these for me, blah, blah, blah. Like he's just kind of trailing along behind the Admiral and and learning what's going on and what's going to happen to Picard and Then he, you know, meets up with Jordy and, and frees data from the lab that he's in because they have to attend the memorial and, you know, all this stuff. I I really love this bit. I think it's really cool to uh, see these characters through Wesley's eyes and not have them recognize that's who he is and that he's doing all these things. And we we get a little bit of the indications of some of his abilities as a traveler too. So for example, they're out in the rain and he produces an umbrella to hold over himself and Admiral Necheyev, but it's not really an umbrella. It's kind of him exerting his traveler powers to protect them from the rain in the form of something that looks like an umbrella or something like that. And it's just a neat way to write this character and kind of, Using his abilities very naturally, which I thought was kind of cool. And there's something odd
0: about this ensign because he'll do little things like walk up to Picard and say, it's going to be okay. (laughs) You know, it's like, what kind (laughs) of ensign just walks up to a captain that, you know, the ensign, the captain doesn't know the ensign, and just like, it's going to be okay. Like pat on the head. And they just kind (laughs) of accept it. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know? There's just something <laughs> unique about this ensign, but then once they start thinking about him, then they f- kind of forget about him. It's almost like, wait, what was I just thinking about? Was there an ensign here? Wait, I don't even remember. What did he look like? I, I don't even remember. Like they start to forget. Mm-hmm. And it's
1: just very interesting how that plays out. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really cool. And uh the fact that uh that it is Wesley Crusher and we get basically the, the final bit of this book is uh, Beverly Crusher is really missing, missing Wesley. And, you know, he reveals himself to her at the end and says, I'm going to save the enterprise, which is flying directly in the face of what he's learned as a traveler. But it seems like he's made that decision to kind of throw that away and, and throw his hat in with the enterprise crew and save them. So, uh, Again, this is mostly set up for the next book, which will wrap up this duology. So, you know, this part of the nine part series, but it's still a really interesting story and really good setup. Um, You also have here in the notes uh, a little bit more about Data. So because it was Data's report that made Picard take the actions that he did and possibly save the Enterprise, I think maybe they should be making a little bit more of a big deal about that, that... You know, what if they didn't do it and the Enterprise was destroyed five seconds later or something like that? But anyway, um, Starfleet decides to remove Data's emotion ship, which is pretty drastic, I think. But apparently the clause in the regulations that allows them to do that is uh, it's add-on equipment because when he joined Starfleet, it wasn't part of him. Uh, so under that authority, they're saying, well, you're not allowed to use that while on duty or something like that. We're taking it out. Uh, what did you think of that? That was, Oh, that, I don't know. That made, I was like, wow. When I read that, it was a bit
0: creepy because at this point he's not using the emotion chip. So he doesn't have emotion about it. And Jordy's just like data. They're taking your emotion chip from you. I mean, you, you should be upset. I mean, Jordy's all upset about this whole thing. And Data's just matter of fact about it. He's like, oh, well, you know, when I joined Starfleet, that wasn't part of me. They have every right to take it. So, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's very logical. Like, that's the thing to do. And it's like mm-hmm. they're taking your emotions away. And you're just like, okay, yeah, they can. Here you go. No problems. Of course, the emotion ship isn't on while he's having those thoughts. But I think what made the emotion ship very interesting to me throughout this book is the play that data has of turning it on and off at all, t- all at different times. So it's like when we talked about him floating in space, he's making calculated decisions on what he's going to do without the emotion ship. And then he gets to where he, th- he, he thinks he's made a decision, but then he turns on the emotion ship to make sure that he can make a final decision by saying, you know, well, what do where does intuition come from? you know, come into play into my decision? Where does fear come into play in my decision? You know, it's really, you know, it's one thing to make the decision without emotions, but then to validate those decisions with emotions is the next step. So Data's always going back and forth with that. And then even when he's back on the Enterprise and the duplicate ship is about to attack, he's got his emotions on and he's like, we've got to shoot the ship. We got to shoot the ship. And Picard's Almost is doing the same thing. Well, that's the emotion side, but to double-check things, let's turn it off and see what the results are. And the results were the same. Of course, the emotion wasn't there, but Data still had the same recommendation that the ship needs to be destroyed. It's a duplicate ship. So at that point, Picard realizes, okay, this isn't an emotional decision. This isn't Data you know, reading into things about the ship and being emotional about this is also now logical because the same conclusion that he is recommending to Picard is the same results without emotion. And so anyway, Mm -hmm. I'm going on about this because at this point as Starfleet is about to take away his chip, they were even questioning uh, data earlier about how he obtained the emotion chip from lore and that lore was making bad decisions and they're like, okay, so you're relying on this chip that came from lore that made bad decisions and you're relying on this chip to make good decisions.
1: Yeah. It was very, very lawyerly. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah. Oh, I feel, I was anytime there's like a courtroom scene or, you know, a lawyer is kind of twisting things from their perspective, I always find that really frustrating. And I know that's how the game is played, but, oh man, I just, you know, I kept coming up with different ways to throw it back in his face and reword what he was saying. But, you know, of course you can't really do that because a lawyer's trained to be able to outdo you on that. So, but, oh yeah, that was frustrating. Yeah,
0: (laughs) And it really (laughs) comes across to me in this book that it's really unfair that data can turn emotions on and off. It's either you're mm-hmm. all in or you're out, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I think that really came across in, in the novel that, you know, oh, really, how convenient of for you to be able to just turn them off when you need to and then turn them back on. And that's really unfair to the rest of us that always have to deal with our emotions and, and we have to deal with pain and we have to deal with the consequences of all these things. And, and you take the, the cowardly way out and just boop, turn it off when you need to. And, you know, in a sense, mm-hmm. it made me wonder if it's best that they do take the emotion chip away from him.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. What, it what is best? And, it it almost does feel like that way sometimes there's, I I'm just reminded of the very ending of the questioning of data when the, the lawyer says, you know, feel free to turn the emotion chip off. Now you're done if you want to be more efficient. Yes. <laughs> and like, I was like, Oh, you. Jerk. Oh, that
0: but, was a great line. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Oh, that yeah. piece right there. That's exactly it. I mean, it's, it's like mm. a slap in the face to all of us who all like data and then realize like, yeah, how convenient for you. You know, it's like, it really is unfair.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What, uh, now there's a novel and I think it's one we covered on the show, but I can't remember which one it was. Maybe we didn't, or maybe it was with Matt. I'm not sure. But, uh, it was Picard basically apologizes to data for what he said in first contact by telling him to turn off his emotion ship because he was like, I shouldn't have done that data, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they had this whole thing where I have no right to tell you when to use your emotion chip or I, not. And
0: that I do recall that. That is true. I don't remember what that's from. I don't know if that's from one of the the later no, novels that, Oh gosh. Yeah. I don't know. Somebody just yeah. tell us in the Babel <laughs> conference or send us an email, but I do remember that.
1: Yeah. So yeah, yeah, definitely. One of our listeners has to know that for sure. So get in touch with us and, and let us know that because that was bugging me while I was reading this too.
0: It must have been something we recently read, because we're both remembering I I think
1: it must have been at least within the last year or so. Yeah. That's my guess, but yeah, I can't remember. Well, so with this first novel, A Time to Be Born, we're kicking off, like I said, a nine-part book series. It's going to be a big undertaking, probably take us quite a while to get through them all, but I'm really excited to do that. So this first part, Bruce, what are your kind of... Final thoughts on this story, and uh, where where do you kind of fall on a rating for this one?
0: Well, this novel is a little less than 300 pages, so it's a little shorter than most of the more recent Star Trek novels in the past decade or so. And uh, I felt like it was very much a quick read. It flowed very well. Um, I think probably this novel and the next novel together could make one nice Size novel as one so it almost feels like maybe they took you know a novel and split it into two but that's fine because it it's a great setup it makes me very intrigued to see where this series is going i'm hoping that the themes that are that have been introduced in this novel do carry through all the nine novels. Having not read all these novels, I don't know if this is just like a two part story. And then when we get to the other novels, they really have nothing to do with this. And it's all just taking just novels dealing with the same, this time period in between these two movies. I would like to see somehow that these stories are all connected with uh, what we're introduced in this, especially with Wesley, who would have known, I want a nine part Wesley story, but <laughs> <laughs> now, of course I don't want it all to be about Wesley. I want to see other characters. I want to know what Guinan's doing. You know, what's, what's happening with her. She, she's not even in this novel. So um, my favorite thing also, and you mentioned it earlier, I just love the way this novel ended. And this is exactly how you want to end a novel for the first novel of a series. And that's, you know, when. Wesley is reunited with Dr. Crusher, his mother, and she's like, you know, so you know what happened with Picard and, you know, why have you come back, Wesley? And, yeah, that line you mentioned is to save the Enterprise. Boom. And it ended there. And I love that, too, because it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Those early episodes of Wesley always saving the Enterprise. Here he goes again.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I never thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense, you know getting back to the character's roots. That's cool. Yeah. yeah I, I really enjoyed this one as well. Um, I feel like they got the characters really right. Like I mentioned Picard, especially I think they, I think John Vornholt captures his voice really, really well. I also really liked the action in this novel and I liked the pacing as well. A lot of times novels can kind of go in fits and starts and there's kind of slow periods, but like everything i felt fit together really well here the you know the the parts that take place in the Rationar battle site that that place is chaotic and unpredictable and I felt like well as I was reading that I felt that as well like it felt very anything could go wrong at any time and everything is going wrong and it's very chaotic and I have no idea what's going to happen so John Vornholt was really able to capture that mood really well. And then the second part where Picard and crew are back at Starfleet headquarters, I felt was really good too, because they were in an unpredictable situation there as well, but of a different sort. So having to deal with bureaucracy and, and that sort of thing. So I really enjoyed this novel. Um, I would have to give it, like, it's not perfect, but I like the character exploration and the unexpected twists and turns, and it's a good setup for part two. So I'd I'd say a pretty solid three and a half to probably more on the four side. It's it's a good novel. I'd say four out of five um, gutted ambassador class starships drifting around a gravity whirlpool. Of some kind. Well, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) And you know, I agree with that rating. I'm about the same on that. I would say that the gravity generators on the ship are working really well.
1: Nice. That's a good rating. (laughs) I like that.
0: (laughs) Wesley has come through for us again. He's not only saving the ship, but he saved this novel. No, it wasn't just because of Wesley. The whole novel was good. Like you were saying, (laughs) I really enjoyed it and I'm really anxious to get to the next one. And, uh, you know, thank you, Matt Rushing, for your suggestion of doing this series and because, you know, we're not getting a lot of new novels so this year.
1: So the perfect opportunity to do a nine-part series. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an ambitious series. I think it was an ambitious series when it was written. Like, I feel like this was a big project and I'm happy to finally be forced really <laughs> to read all of them finally because i've tried a few times and uh that's not for that's that's not a comment on the quality of these books i remember enjoying them the ones that i'd read but it's just you know sometimes it's hard to find the time to really dig in and and commit to a series like this so i'm looking forward to exploring them all um it's been and i have to say it's been a lot of fun talking about nine part book series today but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the track fm network So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Warp 5.
0: I guess I'm going to be the one dissenter because I saw major differences, maybe not in the way it was shot, but in the storylines. And I just thought, yeah, it's Klingon Court, and that's pretty much where the similarities ended for me. The 602 Club.
1: And I really love, before they go to the tension. their principal, Bentley, saying, you know, you get one life, and you get to decide how you're going to spend it. And on top of that, Bravestone says uh, to Finbar, he says, you know, it's a lot easier to be brave when you've got lives to spare. It's a lot harder when you only have one life. And Finbar's like, you've only ever had one life. The orb. I feel like they found a reason for why Cisco would say, okay, I'll stay. Otherwise, you know, he immediately at the beginning was like, "Uh, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to get involved. Send me back to my universe. This is not my place.
0: Earl Gray. Wesley and Petru pass by Worf's quarters where they hear screams coming from within. They find Worf is being beaten by Geordi, Tasha, and Data. (laughs) There's more. Patru moves in to help, but Wesley stops him. He explains that this moment of humiliation is one celebrated by Klingons.
1: (laughs) Okay.
0: So, and and the script goes on to explain that Worf tearfully thanks Jordi, Tasha, and Data because being humiliated by friends makes it, quote, the finest humiliation he'd ever experienced.
1: (laughs) Okay, I almost believe that except the part that says Worf in tears.
0: And that's what else is happening on
1: Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And you can hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple user. And you can get it on your iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or even the desktop iTunes app, which I really like because I'm Apple TV. I will play our podcast sometimes when my wife walks in the room and she thinks... That We're on TV briefly because you'll hear our voices on it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's where you can get all the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And while you're there, give us a star rating and written review. We haven't gotten one since February. Believe me, I look all the time because we will read them here at the end of the show. So send one in on iTunes and we'll read it in an upcoming episode. And if you're not an Apple user, that's okay. You can find our shows on Google Play Music Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link.
1: And if you'd like to play a role in helping us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon, and you can do that by visiting patreon.com/trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com/trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, and those are all available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we really hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And
0: the cool thing about Patreon, too, is we do the roundtables, and I hosted a couple of them uh, about a month or so ago. One was about the Kelvin timeline. The other one was about the first season of Discovery. And I know uh, Brandy Jackala did one about uh, favorite episodes of Enterprise. And it's a great way to meet other Star Trek fans. Uh, so that is a big plus, just pushing that out there just because it's a lot of fun that's how a lot of the hosts on trek fm got involved was through that group so
1: yeah absolutely
0: (laughs) and of course we are always in the babel conference that's where we talk about all our shows and our thoughts about star trek and it's a very safe place in facebook it's called the babel conference our listeners group and just type babel b-a-b-e-l into the search field on facebook and should come right up And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that on the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And, of course, we're on social media. You can go to Twitter. We're at Trek.fm. And on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash trek.fm.
1: You know, Bruce, we read so many darn books for this show. I really wish there was somewhere that I could easily keep track of all of the books that I've read and all of the books that we have coming up on the show, where, oh man, where could I find that?
0: Probably in Goodreads because I'm always updating it so you can keep track.
1: <laughs> Goodreads, right. That thing that you always update and I never do anything with. I'm so sorry. <laughs> But you can find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. And there are great conversations happening about all of the books and comics there. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group and one of us will let you right in. I'd also like to take this moment to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network. And we'd really like to thank you for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Now, Bruce, when you're not slowly circling a gravity well, hopping from debris to debris, trying to find your way out to report back about that weird mimic ship... Where can we find you?
0: Well, once I land on your ship, you can also find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me talking Star Wars, especially Solo, a Star Wars story on the Star Wars Report podcast. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you'll always find me on Facebook in the Babel Conference. And Dan, when you're not Portraying yourself as instant Brewster and walking the halls of Starfleet disguised as not yourself, but as someone else, since you are a traveler, where can people find you?
1: You weren't supposed to know that was me, Bruce. I, I probably should have turned location services off on Twitter, but unfortunately I left them on. So, you know, it's me. I'm at Kertrats on Twitter. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube talking on my Star Trek channel at youtube.com slash Productions. I usually don't do that as Ensign Brewster, though. I just do that as myself. So you can recognize me and hit subscribe. You're a YouTuber. Uh, I am a YouTuber. I guess. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> uh Leave some positive comments on there. I want some positive comments, by the way. So everyone listening find my channel, leave a positive comment on a video because I know Literary Trex listeners are just a cut above the average YouTube commenter. Well, so, at least you know, people
0: like, should check it out. Just to see what you look like.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I have a face made for podcasts, by the way. <laughs> and uh, of course you can also find me on facebook.com slash Kurt Ratz Productions and like Bruce in the Babel Conference, mostly lurking, sometimes commenting. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.